0: KPBS On Demand is supported by... UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, Mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music. March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu.
1: This week we're checking in on an exciting time for local sports. The Padres are contenders. A new stadium is almost here... Big changes are coming at the college level, and sports betting is on the ballot. I'm Matt Hoffman, and this is KPBS Roundtable.
0: KPBS On Demand
1: Hello and welcome to our discussion this week. I'm KPBS reporter Matt Hoffman. And joining us this week are Craig Elston. He's the play-by-play voice and chief marketing officer for the San Diego Soccers. He's also the host of the Padres Hot Tub podcast. And he does public address announcing for the Wave Football Club. We also have two guests here from Voice of San Diego, Andy Keats and Scott Lewis. We're going to be getting their takes on some of the political angles for Snapdragon Stadium and the upcoming election. We really want to welcome you guys all here. We're going to start with the biggest game in town, the Padres. They're stumbling a little bit lately, but they're firmly in the playoff mix now about halfway through the season. And they've been doing all this without their star player, Fernando Tatis Jr. Craig, how much do they miss him? And do we know if he's going to be making an appearance this season?
2: Well, I'll answer the second part of that first. He will definitely be making an appearance. Uh, Tatis has been cleared to swing the bat. Uh, He's been doing some swings in the batting cage. He's been taking on-field drills for over a month now to to have his legs underneath him so that once he got cleared from a broken wrist that he suffered in the offseason, he'd be able to progress as quickly as possible through minor league games. With all of that said, it's probably three to four weeks before we see... Fernando Tatis Jr. back in the lineup. I think anything before the 1st of August uh, would be a bonus for the Padres and their fans. And are they missing him? Well, this team is currently 11 games over 500. they They've been doing it on an ice skate thin margin uh, of playing with some of the weakest power in all of Major League Baseball, definitely the least power in their division. So Tatis instantly, if he's himself, brings power. And that's a, that's one of the biggest parts of the equation to whether the Padres can finish the job this year.
1: And Craig, you did mention that they are above 500 and we're soon going to be finding out which Padres players will be in the upcoming All-Star game. It's being held up in Los Angeles. Manny Machado, he's likely going to be there, but let's hear from a fan of one of Manny's old teams, the Orioles. Andy, are there any other Padres deserving of a selection?
3: Who? Any other Padres deserving of an All Star bid? Uh, honestly, should
1: be an easy answer.
3: No, probably not. I mean, I think I think Machado. I think I, I think you could probably make a case for, I don't know, maybe Manea, maybe Sean Manea. What about a Joe Musgrove, bro? I was going
4: to oh, say Musgrove, Musgrove.
3: Musgrove, yeah, Musgrove clearly. I, I mean, I think Machado, Machado's Jeez. a slam dunk. Machado's a slam dunk. Musgrove, uh, is, is he? You picked the wrong guy in, to talk about sports. Is Musgrove, is Musgrove in the Cy Young conversation right now? Yeah he, he's, yeah, he lost his last two, but he's right there in the middle. Of it. Yeah, yeah. so uh, Musgrove in the in the rotation and, and Machado, who's I've had the, the glorious pleasure of watching every – every game of his career except for
4: that unfortunate stint in Los Angeles. Can we Scott, just? It, it sounds like you want to jump in here. Well, mm-hmm. I do. I just think we should make a point that um, Andy's terrible at talking about baseball, but also that Tatis will come back and he'll get hurt again, and that's just what we have to live with, that he is such an extraordinary ball player that every once in a while he will play so hard that one of his limbs will fly off of his body And we'll just have to deal with the trauma of watching that happen. They'll put him back together and he'll go back and play again. He's just, it's just, he's like an angel that'll fly into our room every couple of months, maybe every couple of years. He'll entertain us and then he'll go away and you never know when he'll come back again. That's just life with Fernando Tatis.
1: If you're listening to this on Friday, the Padres, they're about to debut their new City Connect uniforms. They're designed by Nike, and the look is very neon. Let's get your takes, starting with Scott. What do you think of these new digs?
4: Well, I I, I love anything that's different. I'm into it. I like the story they, they told about why they connected it to, to Tijuana, to uh, Baja and San Diego, and, and what the colors and the look uh, does to do that. So I'm in, but... Uh, um, I don't know what. Wait, are, is this polarizing?
3: I, 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 I thought the reaction to this has been pretty positive. Is, is this a, is this a polarizing topic that I've missed somehow? Craig, go ahead. Well, I you know I, I tell you what, even in our office, it's kind
2: of a, a show of hands, and it's half we love it, half we hate it. When I first looked at it, I thought that maybe Miami and their design team had two good ideas for City Connect and said, oh, San Diego, you don't have any here. Let me, let me give you our, our alternate uh, because it does have a, a very Miami Vice-type uh, you know, type feel with, with the with the pink and the mint. But I'll, I'll tell you this. When I saw it in person out at a ball game, when I, I was at the game Tuesday and I, and I saw people wearing the City Connect jersey, the pink isn't as bright uh, as maybe it comes off in some of the media videos. Uh, it's a little bit more subtle and I'll tell you what, I'm down with it. I, I'm not down with the That 70s show font for the numbers, which I think is a little funky. But short of that, I feel like they did a good job. And I think there's a lot of worse City Connect jerseys around the, the majors.
3: And compared, just compared to all the different players weekend combinations that they've had over the last oh. few years. I mean, these, these are clearly the best of those. And I, I, like they're going to move a lot of units of these hats. These hats, are, they're going to sell a lot of, these, of, of, of merch around this thing.
1: I think nothing beats those military jerseys. Those are very cool. And we know that this season, it started with a lockout and a new collective bargaining agreement. And we know that that process, it also gave us an expanded playoff format. Craig, this goes to you. How do you see the second half going for the Padres? I mean, are the playoffs a guarantee here?
2: Fangraphs currently has the Padres as an 82% favorite to clinch a playoff spot, but only about a one in six chance of winning the division. I think those numbers even went down over the last week because anytime the Dodgers get hot and the Padres have a little bit of a slump, all of a sudden you see that gap open up, and I think it's up to six games now uh, in the NL West. So winning the division is going to be a real long shot, but. Getting one of those three wildcard spots, I think, has to be not only the focus, but the expectation for the Padres and their fans. Uh, This franchise cannot afford another collapse like they had last year. I expect them to try and add at least one bat from the outside and hopefully one reliever uh, as well to the mix. And then you go from there and you hope that the health, Tatis returning, maybe a couple of the pitchers returning from injury, uh, will allow this roster to fill out.
1: And what about you, Andy and Scott? Do you guys see the Padres playing into October this year?
3: I would be surprised if they don't make it through. I was surprised last year, so who knows they've they've done it they've done it before. But uh, my expectation is they'll be okay.
1: And Scott, what about you? I know you're a yeah, big
4: fan. Yeah, I think the distinction this year is their pitching. I, I remember a couple, what was it like three weeks ago? Everybody's like, "Boy, do they have too many pitchers? Should we move on?" It's like, no, just just hold on. They they have better pitching this year. And that should. One thing that is genuinely never
3: a problem in baseball is having too many good players. <laughs> yeah. People often try to try to turn that into a problem. And I, I got to tell you, it never works out as a problem.
4: <laughs> yeah, I think that'll hold up. Uh, Tatis, a few other things. You know, I do think having more people, more teams available for uh, playoffs makes it harder to maybe get some players from some of those teams that are on the edge. So maybe there won't be the blockbuster trades that we've seen before or free uh, you know, so pre-free agency deals, but uh, uh, should be fun to watch.
1: And to Andy's point, a lot of fans have definitely been happy seeing the Padres' ownership spending a lot more money going out and getting some of these big players. But let's also take a moment to talk about Petco Park, where the Padres play, and one of those responsible for getting it built former team executive Larry Lucchino. He was inducted into the Padres Hall of Fame this week. Scott, this goes to you. How significant was that Petco Park project in building up the gas lamp area?
4: Oh, it's huge. I mean, you can look at the um, the before and after of what that area looked like. Now, I think what is often understated is just how much of a public investment that is. If the public invests two or three hundred million dollars, you should see a transformation of an area. And we shouldn't forget that both A, that was a big part of it, but B, that is not possible right now. (laughs) The money that was available for that sort of investment was from redevelopment funds sequestered for downtown Uh, that no longer exists. And and so, you know, similar type projects, whether it's sports arena or, or elsewhere, would require much more public or private investment to be be able to come off. And and so uh, but Petco Park is a gems uh, regularly considered one of the top, if not the top uh, ballparks around the the country. And and the area is uh, is still still uh, being built up because of what was spurred there. So uh, a lot to um, look back on. Sure.
1: You're listening to KPBS Roundtable, and this week our guests are Craig Elston from the San Diego Sockers, along with Scott Lewis and Andy Keats from Voice of San Diego. Now, Craig, we want to turn to you here. Speaking of venues, there's a couple more on the way. Let's start with some of the news made this week by the Sockers. They're building a new home up in Oceanside, and now it has a new name. Can you tell us about what exactly is going on up there in North County?
2: Yes, absolutely. It was uh, May of 2021 uh, that we had the official groundbreaking up at the El Corazon Sports Complex area in Oceanside for a new uh, entirely privately financed. Uh, sports arena and entertainment complex uh, that is being built and is still on track uh, to be completed by fall of 2023. That will be the new home of the San Diego Soccers. It's expected to be the new entertainment hub for all of North County San Diego. And this week, it, w- it was a very exciting week uh, for our organization and for the arena management group that Front Wave Credit Union has signed on to be the name and And it'll be Frontwave Arena uh, up in Oceanside, and that's a 10-year, $9 million naming rights deal uh, to see Frontwave Credit Union, which has been around North County for about 70 years, uh, really put their stamp on the new entertainment hub for North County. It's an exciting partnership.
1: And we know that the Soccers, they've been playing at the sports arena. That's in San Diego's Midway District, and they've been there for decades. And we know that moving to Oceanside will be a a big change, a little bit of a gamble even maybe. How's that going so far? Do you guys expect to bring on a lot of new fans or other fans to migrate up there?
2: You know, the real risk, Matt, would be to not have an arena that you could control uh, and not have a place uh, that you have the ability to, you know, Take advantage of multiple revenue streams to have the ability to guarantee that you've got a place to play and to guarantee the dates in which you play the soccers have been renters uh, their entire lifetime all the way back to Julie V and Bronco Sagoda, you know, and the, the championships of the 80s. They've always been renters and right now they're renters. In a very, very crowded arena with the San Diego Gulls, with the San Diego Seals, the Strike Force, never mind all the concerts. Yes, it'll be a little bit of a challenge to migrate our audience. That's a challenge that we accept. And for every fan who feels maybe that. It's a little bit too far of a drive. There's another fan in North County that was making a long drive to get down to the Midway District. So, you know, there's always going to be a risk inherent, especially putting something in a new area. But I think there's way more reward uh, in terms of the potentiality of creating something new and generating a new audience as well.
1: And if you haven't seen them go check out those renderings they look very cool. Uh, We also have Scott Lewis here from voice of San Diego with us. And you might hear him sometimes on sports talk radio, especially when the sports arena redevelopment is in the news. The city had to stop and restart that process again. And so Scott, I guess it's a simple question, but maybe not a simple answer. Are they close to having a final plan here?
4: Well, all of the proposed bids for that land are illegal right now. You would have to raise the height limit for the area to make them possible. And that's supposedly going on the ballot again in November. We'll see if that goes forward. There is one deal, one bidder that has the sort of leading edge right now, this, the, they're, they're setting the, the pace and that's the Zephyr partnership. All three of the bids that have advanced on propose a new arena Uh, along with thousands of housing units. Uh, And they propose a whole new arena as in they're gonna bulldoze the old one and build a new one. And I still have a lot of questions about the arena. There were the two bids that proposed to rehabilitate the one that was there, kind of like what's happened at the forum in Los Angeles. Uh, Those bids did not go forward. So all three of them are committed to bulldozing and and rebuilding a new one. That's That's several hundred million dollars It it, it also feels weird if they build an arena that's maybe something similar size to what they're building in Oceanside or to what the what the arena at San Diego State is, the Viejas. like, why build another one that size? And and yet that might be the only one they can afford. And so why would you tear down one that's bigger to do that? It's like a lot of weird questions I haven't uh, heard very good answers on about the arena. Uh, So. The city is trying to drive towards one bidder, though, by the time the election goes forward in November for that height limit issue. And we'll see which one of those emerges or which combo of them emerges to make that bid possible, how much money they put into the initiative to make sure it passes so that they can therefore go forward and and try to build something. But we're many, many years out from that.
1: Yeah, it sounds like that there's definitely still some unanswered questions there. There's another building project happening, and we're talking about the stadium in Mission Valley. The Aztecs and the Wave FC, they're going to begin playing there very soon, just a couple months in September. Voice of San Diego has been covering the larger transformation of that whole stadium site, SDSU West. Andy, how's it looking now, just a few weeks away from opening?
3: Yeah, looks like they're going to hit their mark. I, you know, I think, frankly, San Diego State and the the people who pushed the ballot initiative that made that possible probably deserve to take a little bit of a victory lap. They came forward promising a really ambitious timeframe to take ownership of the land, to finance the development, to uh, actually execute the construction, to work out whatever problems they would need to uh, with labor to come to a deal. And You know, myself included, and I think a lot of other people were skeptical that they would be able to hit a lot of those targets, and they have. They graded the land, they developed the land, and as we've talked about with Sports Arena and probably a handful of other projects we could, we could talk about in this city if we wanted to, most people have not been able to hit the ambitious timelines that they've set for themselves. Now, San Diego State, as a arm of the state government, as opposed to the local government, has a leg up on that, on, on that front. But whatever the reasons, yeah, they, they set an ambitious schedule to get that uh, stadium built and they've built it and it's going to to open in time for week one just like they said they would
1: and we know that also who's going to be playing there is the new wave fc they're part of the recent expansion in the national women's soccer league and craig we know that one of your many jobs is public address announcing for this new team how has san diego taken to this team we know that there's a lot of soccer options in san diego even with the loyal but how have things been going
2: uh, i got to imagine they're going at in the top percentile of expectation for uh, the San Diego Wave and and their very young staff and and new ownership. It's basically been a sellout every single game at Torero Stadium. And, you know, as, as the PA voice, you know, it's exciting to be there. I hadn't really been around the level of, you know, World Cup class, women's soccer uh, on a regular basis and been there in person before. And I think for a fan of soccer, maybe if you're more of a fan that's gone to a lot of men's games, a lot of outdoor games, it might take a game or two to get adjusted to the slight change in pace. But the talent is so clear and there's just no better draw than going out on a night and knowing that you're not just going to see Alex Morgan, clearly the best striker in the world in her sport. But you're also going to see five, six, seven different players across the two teams, maybe more, that are not only U.S. national team players, but might be Swedish, Mexican, Canadian national team players. So NWSL is truly the highest level of women's soccer in the world. Uh, it's the equivalent of bringing like the the British, you know, the English Premier League here and, and and having that in the United States. And I think it's just been an easy sell. A very interesting thing, though, Matt, briefly, it's a very different audience. It's a very different crowd. That you see out there, it's not the average Padre fan crowd or even loyal fan crowd, and that's been fascinating to me demographically. And I think it's really exciting for them too.
4: They tried something uh, that the loyal wasn't willing to do too, which is they're moving into the big stadium. Um, the loyal has taken the approach that it's better to be in smaller stadiums for these initial years as they build their brand and their following. That uh, you know, make sure they're in a packed stadium that's small as opposed to a. Uh, a half full stadium that's large and the wave has just said, nah, let's go. Let's go into the big stadium right away. Let's see how it goes. That's a big, bold risk and, and an interesting decision for them to make. Uh, and I think it also illustrates that uh, in, in sort of major league soccer, although this is USL uh, for, the, for the loyal, that, that the, there's a lot more involved in the real estate and in the, in the wealth building side of that enterprise than in the just straight soccer side of the enterprise. And I think that um, that's playing out in, in in how these two teams are approaching their, their near term future here.
0: KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu.
1: And then moving on to our final topic, they never say mixed sports and politics, but that's sort of what California is doing this November. Let's talk about the news that two sport ballot measures will be on the upcoming ballot. One has to do with online betting and another with in-person sports books. We know it's been a while since the U.S. Supreme Court opened the doors to legalize sports betting. But, Scott, Native Tribes, they've had their own gaming industries for a while. How could these ballot measures maybe impact them or change how things are going right now?
4: Well, they're they're running, uh, or a lot of them are running, one that qualified for the ballot. That that would allow them to host sports gambling. So they would have sports books within their, their casinos, which I think a lot of people who've been to casinos in, in Vegas... Uh, would recognize. And that's what they want to do. They want to limit it there and at uh, force racetracks around the the state. Um, They are really also running a lot of ads against the other initiative. And this one is sponsored by some of the big players in online uh, gaming that have emerged, uh, FanDuel and DraftKings. Now, a lot of states have gone forward with online gambling uh, uh, after some of the legal opinions and rulings came out but this uh, so the online one would allow them to uh, with a major upfront investment allow companies to host online platforms for sports gaming the tribal uh, uh, sports books ones would just allow for these casinos that are, are on tribal lands to host sports books. It would not have an online component. So one of the questions that people keep coming up is what if they both pass? I think there's a pretty reasonable opinion, and I think it, it would hold up that both of them could pass and uh, and mobile uh, sports betting would be allowed and that these tribal uh, casinos could put up their own sports books as well. So what I think the near-term impact is for for anybody out there is you're going to start to see a ton of ads about gambling, about uh, tribal casinos and about online gambling and the horrors and benefits of it. Uh, it's going to fix homelessness, but it's also going to cause homelessness. It's, uh, you take your pick, there's going to be a tremendous amount of, of rhetoric on both sides of this uh, as people try to um, you know uh, make the case to, to voters.
1: With that in mind, does anyone have any thoughts on, you know, maybe how normalized sports betting has become? Especially maybe how it's presented. You know, fantasy sports, it's a major industry. We've also seen networks like ESPN and others. They mix in the odds and other gambling information during game broadcasts. I've also seen a lot of these viral TikToks of big bets that pay off, people going crazy. Is there a stigma around gambling or what do you think maybe has erased it?
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, it used to be the thing if you were if you were a gambler, if you liked to put a bet on a couple things, you would pick up uh moments in a sports broadcast that maybe a typical viewer wouldn't with Al Michaels would decide to to speak in code about uh about some late in the game score that that crossed the line but you know but he ne- he never came out he would never come out and say explicitly what he was really talking about and like that veil came off last year <laughs> last year you just had you had announcers openly talking about it like one of the most popular segments on Sports Center now is Van Pelt doing his his bad beats segment where people talk about the most obscure games that had some shocking outcome that changed the you know who who got paid out um it's certainly a big change, and I think we'll continue to see in, like, the sports media world. You'll continue to see um, experts experts materialize and and uh, verticals, uh, you know, establish themselves as as revenue sources for those for those media entities. I mean, I, I could say also that, like, the people I know who live in New York when when it became easy to bet online, man, like the the friction that went. That used to go into getting a bet placed and paid out, removing that significantly increased the number of people who are out there gambling. I mean the the number of people I know who were willing to jump over all the hurdles that you needed to jump over to get a bet in and to get a bet paid out, you take all those down and a lot of people said, well, okay, in that case, I'll, I'll absolutely put, put some money down. Um so I you know I think if you know right now a handful of friends that that bet each weekend I I think you know in a world where it's all legalized you should expect that number to increase pretty substantially.
1: <laughs> and Scott or Craig, you guys have any thoughts here?
3: I just want to say quickly,
2: you you mentioned fantasy, and I think fantasy is truly what opened the door, and specifically fantasy football. Once it became normalized that we were going to talk about that, which is gambling, it's just a different version, than to move from there to the more direct spreads and overs and unders. It was just one more step. The window had already shifted.
4: <laughs> Scott, I, go ahead. I was really jarred last year in Thanksgiving when I was watching college football and and I noticed that they had the lines, the betting lines on all the sports, the scores ticker. Like so it would say like this game's at 4 p.m. and here's it's, you know, uh, minus six for Michigan. And it's like whoa (laughs) that was a big leap for and so i think the college space is really something watch there's still ads at the rose bowl at the urinal that say like don't bet on sports it's it's you know deleterious to our mission and you know stay away from it and and yet on tv they're they're putting the lines up there there's a lot of mixed signals but i think it has potential like really bad outcomes let's say you have a college class with with the star football player And you lose a thousand bucks and you go to class on Monday after you lost a thousand bucks. Like, is that the kind of uh, environment we're comfortable with that student being in right after that? And I think there's a lot of questions like that that'll be really interesting to watch uh, as this becomes just part of life, as opposed to this thing that was, again, hidden underground and a lot more friction. And I absolutely believe what Andy said, like, if it's If you remove the the barriers of how hard it is to pay in cash and and get a bet in and and you make it easy to push a couple buttons to do like venmo uh or easier uh you're gonna have a lot more participation and then the 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 downside of gambling could really show up a lot more clearly
1: we're going to have to leave our discussion there. I want to thank everyone so much for coming. Craig Elston from the San Diego Sockers, Scott Lewis and Andy Keats, both from Voice of San Diego. You can listen to the KPBS Roundtable podcast anytime at kpbs.org. I'm Matt Hoffman. Thanks so much for being here with us. We'll be back with you next week.